Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm a spun counter guy. Thanks for stopping by. In 1846, a slave by the name of Dred Scott, after several attempts to buy his own freedom from his master, Eliza Sanford, sued. In one Missouri court, Scott won his freedom, but then in the appeals process pursued by Sanford, his liberty was taken away again. Through a long process, the case ended up before the U.S. Supreme Court, where a devastating decision delivered by Chief Justice Roger Taney in 1857 said that not only would Scott, his wife, and children remain slaves, but, in fact, the rights of man as defined in the Declaration of Independence had never applied to those Americans of African descent. The decision was a boon to slave masters, while at the same time was a lightning rod for many who had been both working to end slavery and attempting to maintain for free people of color the rights they held precariously. The decision would also serve as a bridge too far for those with even the most tepid of beliefs in the rights of Americans of African descent. In spite of this enormous setback, former slave and abolitionist Frederick Douglass declared that the Scott versus Sanford decision caused him to have even brighter hopes for the future. He explaining, Such a decision cannot stand. God will be true, though every man be a liar. We can appeal from this hell-black judgment of the Supreme Court to the court of common sense and common humanity. We can appeal from man to God. If there is no justice on earth, there is yet justice in heaven. You may close your Supreme Court against the black man's cry for justice, but you cannot, thank God, close against him the ear of the sympathizing world, nor shut up the court of heaven. All that is merciful and just on earth and in heaven will execrate and despise this edict of Tani. So today we're going to talk with Dr. Dennis Bowman about the days leading up to the monumental case, in addition to its nuances and aftermath. Dr. Bowman is the author of two books on Abraham Lincoln and is a visiting scholar at Ashland University in Ohio. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of this particular case we're going to talk about, uh, can you talk about what was America going through during this time period, especially as it related to the argument over slavery. The period that we're talking about, I'm presuming you're, you're referring to the, the early 19th century up to the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, which there is a, a certain amount of um, change that occurs. Uh, from the founding generation up to about 1820, 1820s, 18, early 1830s, there seemed to be a, a fairly strong uh, belief that slavery was wrong. It was an evil that uh, and was uh, difficult to remove. This is certainly the, the viewpoint of people like Jefferson and James Madison, George Washington, and others of the founders. Uh, and the idea was that uh, they wanted to see slavery 
eventually uh, die out. And they thought it was actually dying out uh, during that period of, of time uh, from the late 18th century uh, to the really the 1820s. They hoped that that's what was going to happen. Certainly that was one of the, the expressions of Madison. And we see the, the evidence uh, from many of the letters uh, that Jefferson wrote that uh, he believed that slavery did need to be uh, removed. But uh, once again, he, he knew that it would be very difficult in large part because the uh, opinions of many uh, people were changing back towards pro-slavery, in large part because of the economic interest. Uh, uh, who would want to go out into the fields and work for themselves if they could uh, buy slaves to do it for them and it would be profitable? So you can understand that that uh, particular interest. Uh, when we look at especially the, uh, the uh, freedom suits that were being brought not only in Missouri, but in other slave states. Uh, for some time, uh, there was a good deal of, uh, of uh, support in the courtroom for these cases, these freedom suits that were being brought up by slaves against their masters. If, the, if indeed the facts in the case were such that uh, it supported the slaves' uh, position and case, then uh, they would gain their freedom. Uh, however, over time, I think in large part because of the increasing tension between the North and the South over the slavery issue and uh, the uh, abolitionist uh, movements that had begun to to spring up during the 1820s and 1830s, you begin to see much, much more tension. And uh, and eventually that that does uh, create a problem for those those uh, uh, slaves who were bringing freedom suits, uh, and despite maybe having the facts in their favor, uh, they weren't winning their cases anymore. And I, I would think that uh, when you look at the the precedent in Missouri uh, in these uh, freedom suits, it, it's pretty clear that there's there's a time period where uh, these these freedom suits uh, indeed are being successful. And then it, there's a time where they begin to become less and less successful until that uh, case that we all know about, Dred Scott, uh, is brought before the, the St. Louis Circuit Court and eventually the Missouri Supreme Court. And so it, it is a time of, of transition. And, and you begin to see a domination, I think, of, uh, of uh, the thought of people like uh, John C. Calhoun and others who, who really – believe that it's a mistake to to even hint at the idea that there's something wrong with slavery. And so the pro-slavery ideology begins to spring up and you begin to see a great deal of uh, publications being uh, uh, pub published in the South uh, that are pro-slavery in reaction to the abolitionist uh, literature. So there's a lot going on at this period. Can you give a, like a short, quick example of a freedom suit that was successful? And what was the legal basis if a state had legal slavery? How did they win these cases? Yeah, it's one of those things that when I was a graduate student, I was intrigued by the idea that there were freedom suits in a slave state. It seemed very odd to me. But uh, I, after looking into it a great deal, I found out that indeed, all of the slave states had similar laws that uh, allowed for slaves to bring suit 
in certain circumstances. Uh, and so I just let me give you, a, I'll give you an example of a, a successful one here in just a moment, but I just wanna give you an idea of what were the, uh, the, the facts that would, would allow us a, a slave to actually bring a suit. It could be a will dispute uh, where the master of a slave had uh, emancipated a slave like George Washington did for his, and it's being challenged by family members, those people who expected to receive these slaves and were disappointed. Uh, it could be uh, also just uh, the fact that a slave had been brought into a free state or a free territory. And that was one of the more common uh, reasons for these suits being brought, where uh, just like in the case of Dred Scott, they'd be uh, the, the slave had been brought into a state and then brought back out. And the, and the very first case that comes up in, in Missouri, which is interesting, it's Winnie versus Whitesides. It's the 1824 case. In fact, the statute uh, that uh, allowed for uh, slaves to uh, gain their freedom through these freedom suits. Uh, was established in 1824 by the Missouri legislature. And so this case, Winnie versus Whitesides, uh, was an 1824 case as well. And what had happened was she had been brought, Winnie had been brought by her master into Illinois for a time. And it resided there. I think she had actually uh, worked for a woman uh, not uh, far outside of Missouri, just on the other side of the Mississippi River. And... Uh, she had uh, then been brought back into the state and uh, she had sued for freedom there in the statute that Missouri had and many of the, and I think all of the other uh, slave states had at this time for these freedom suits is a uh, provision for the state to appoint uh, uh, lawyers uh, to represent the slave. And also they, they had to, the master had to actually make available their slave so that they could confer with their lawyer uh, in the lead up to the case. And so uh, this was just one of those cases. And uh, it's interesting, the judge who was involved in this particular cases uh, who handed down the decision was George Tompkins. And he was very, very strong advocate for natural rights, although he was a, a native born Virginian originally, and uh, of course, grew up uh, in a slave society. Uh, but uh, one of the things that he ruled in this particular case, which set precedent for uh, quite a while um, in Missouri in these suits, that uh, the burden of proof would be upon the owner to prove that the sl that the black person was a slave under law. And he also ruled that uh, slave status does not reattach to a black person when that black person has been brought back into the slave state from the free state or the territory. And so indeed later on, the United States Supreme Court would actually rule that uh, slave status would reattach to uh, slaves once they've been brought from a free territory back into a slave state. So, uh, but at this time, uh, this was the common idea that uh, once you bring a, a slave into a free territory, you're going to then uh, make that person free because in a free state, it's illegal. So right. uh, you, basically, you're changing the status of your slave by bringing them into a, a forbidden place. Mm -hmm. 
so to get to the case that we want to talk about, uh, first of all, who was Dred Scott? What what do we know about his personal history? Well, there, there's not too much, as, as you can imagine. Uh, he was um, he was a slave. Uh, his master, um, who brought him into uh, free territory, was a, an officer in the military. He was a surgeon. And so uh, he was ordered into a, a free territory, uh, what what was part of the uh, region uh, in Missouri that, according to the Missouri Compromise, was to remain free and uh, was a free territory. So the, the region that th- they went into was not uh, uh, organized yet uh, to go to become a, a state. So. It's a very early stages, territorial stage uh, of the region. And you have um, him basically uh, serving that master. Uh, and uh, this is this somebody, was somebody who, who had uh, uh, traveled around quite a bit. As you can imagine, a, 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 an army doctor is not somebody who's, who's going to stay put very much. That's, that was typical at that time for for many of the the officers. They would be off in frontier regions, and so uh, after he had served, Scott's master brought him back to St. Louis, where he was originally from, and it was it was there not long afterwards that uh, the master died, leaving the uh, slave to his wife uh, Irene Emerson, I think was her name, and. Um, it's not long after that that Dred Scott, apparently knowing that uh, having been brought into a free territory would make him free, he he uh, he brought suit in the St. Louis Circuit Court, and uh, and there was a, a number of delays. One of them was that uh, originally the judge in the case did not think that uh, that that Scott had actual. A good, actually, a good case, and so he refused, and it went up to the Missouri Supreme Court. They sent it back down, saying that he did have a case, and then there was a, a delay with the uh, with the cholera epidemic in St. Louis. Uh, his one of his original lawyers actually died in that cholera epidemic, and and of course, people left town when that happened, and so there were a number of, of delays that. That uh, meant that from about 1846, it took from 1846 to 1852 to, for the case to actually get up to the the uh, Missouri Supreme Court, and, it, and so it's it's a very interesting story just from that standpoint. Um, another aspect of the case, which I think is really interesting, is that it's almost an identical case to an earlier case, uh, Rachel V. Walker of 1836. And uh, the reason it's identical is because Walker, who who held Rachel as a slave, was a, a an army officer who had been sent into a free territory, and he brought his uh, slave with him, Rachel. And uh, it's it's further interesting in the in the fact that uh, the lawyer who actually represented Walker, the the master, was Hamilton R. Gamble, who would be the uh, dissenter in the 1852 Missouri Supreme Court case when he was chief justice of the Missouri Supreme Court. There were three judges on the court, and he was the lone dissenter in the case. 
And he actually wanted to rule uh, in favor of Scott and the case that he had uh, been involved in as a lawyer in 1836, he had actually represented the master. Hmm. And so you could see how that role of lawyers often having to defend uh, in court uh, and represent in court uh, uh, people that uh, they disagreed with. They thought that the facts in the, in, in the law were against their, their client, but the clients insisting on going to court and so that seems to have been what happened in this particular case. Well, let me ask you this. These lawyers that the slaves were getting for the freedom suits and, of course, of Dred Scott, were they being paid by someone because they couldn't have had that much money? Or, or how did they get good lawyers? The state was paying for them uh-huh. because they were state appointed. Gotcha. They were being paid by the state. And, in fact, Gamble in one case was appointed with another lawyer. In a case uh, that uh, also made it to the, not only to the Missouri Supreme Court, but to the United States Supreme Court. But at this time, uh, in the 1820s, 1830s, the United States Supreme Court routinely, in these sorts of cases, just uh, uh, sent them back down, saying that they had no jurisdiction over them, which is interesting. Uh, they felt that uh, the the states... That should be the the final resting place of the cases was in in the states where they originated, mm. and uh, there didn't seem to be any real interest in interfering in those kind of cases at that time. Uh, of course, things changed very rapidly, and uh, you have turnover in the courts, not only at the federal level but in the the Supreme Court level. The, there were a couple of judges who joined Tompkins who remained on the court for quite a while. Mm. It should be remembered at this time the the court was appointed, the, the judges were appointed by uh, the governor and, of course, approved by the Senate of the state. And uh, two very strongly pro-slavery judges uh, by 1841 were on the court with uh, Tompkins, uh, William B. Napton and William Scott. William Scott will be the, the judge who will, will eventually hand down the majority opinion in the 1852 case. But uh, it's interesting that uh, once Napton and Scott were on the on the the court, of course they they made up a, a majority of out of the three judges, and Tompkins was was uh, essentially outvoted, and uh, many of the cases where slaves would have gained their freedom earlier uh, from the earlier court uh, had their had their cases ruled against them, and indeed Napton and Scott. Uh, what we're looking for a proper case to overturn all of the uh, freedom suit precedent that had uh, been established from 1824, but they didn't really get the right course, the right uh, case. So uh, one of the things that's interesting is to, and from one of the cases, uh, Napton actually gives the the basis upon which uh they would decide these cases. And it's very different from Tompkins' uh, established rule that uh, slaves, uh, rather masters, would have the burden of proof to prove that they owned a slave. And if you don't mind, I'll I'll read uh, just a a short selection from this uh, decision by uh, by, uh, Napton, which I think is interesting. He says, 
Whatever may be the policy of other governments, it has not been the policy of this state to favor the liberation of Negroes from the condition in which the laws and usages have placed the mass of their species. On the contrary, our statute expressly throws a burden of establishing a right to freedom upon the petitioner, and the provision is both wise and humane. Neither sound policy nor enlightened philanthropy should encourage in a slaveholding state the multiplication of a race whose condition could be neither that of freemen nor of slaves and whose existence and increase in this anomalous uh, character without promoting their individual comforts or happiness tend only to dissatisfy and corrupt those of their own race and color remaining in a state of servitude. Different principles and other presumptions may be very safely and perhaps very wisely indulged in where the institution of slavery has never existed or has been entirely abolished. So uh, he's establishing a completely different rule from Tompkins in that uh, the assumption is going to be that a black person is a slave rather than vice versa. And so that is a a very important thing to, to see happening in uh, the Missouri courts at this time. Um, it's also interesting that by, um, by 1850, uh, the court had changed again, and uh, James, two strongly, uh, one strongly pro-slavery judge, James H. Birch, and another moderate judge, John F. Ryland, joined the court. And so, um, this happened uh, just for a short time because uh, soon after that, after 1850, the Missouri Constitution was amended, allowing for the election of Missouri Supreme Court judges and other uh, circuit court judges in the state. And uh, this led to the election of uh, William Scott, at John F. Ryland, and Hamilton R. Gamble. You remember that Scott had been on the on the court with Napton for a short time. And uh, he was very pro-slavery, whereas uh, Ryland was, uh, was not uh, a strong pro-slavery uh, judge, though he did have, he was uh, a slaveholder and uh, had moderate views. Uh, and then of course, Hamilton R. Gamble, who was also a slaveholder, uh, however, uh, wanted to follow the law, the precedent and, um, looked more favorably upon uh, these freedom suits than did uh, Scott, Napton, and others before him. And so the case uh, that comes before the court, uh, as I said, it began in 1846. Uh, There were different delays, which I mentioned, and uh, the the St. Louis Circuit Court actually rules against uh, Emerson, the uh, Scott's uh, uh, master, and uh, she appeals the case up to the Missouri Supreme Court. The court um, decides that they're going to send it back down to the circuit court. And eventually, um, uh, they, they, they actually rule against Scott. And that's when it comes back up to the Missouri Supreme Court. And so by 1852, uh, the case is, has moved up there. But uh, there's, there's an interesting little uh, episode that happens in that time before the court, the case actually comes before the Missouri Supreme Court when Napton was still on, on the court with Birch. 
And uh, it's interesting in, in particular because it really is a preview. The, the type of the decision that Napton wanted to give in this case that was prevented because the court had uh, become uh, an elected court through amending the Constitution of Missouri. And uh, this meant that that uh, Napton could not hand down this, this decision. But in a diary uh, of Edward Bates, who later became the attorney general under Lincoln, um, who is a prominent lawyer in St. Louis at the time, he learns from uh, Judge Ryland that uh, about the decision that's going to be handed down that uh, Napton and Birch had intended to hand down. So I'll just read uh, uh, from this. There's a short uh, passage in the the uh, diary of uh, Bates, which is dated October 26, 1850. He says, Judge Ryland last afternoon, afternoon told me that the majority of the court, Judges Napton and Birch, we're about soon to give an opinion overruling all former decisions of the Supreme Court, declaring Negro slaves emancipa- emancipated by a residence uh, in northwest of the Ohio in virtue of the ordinance of 1787. They assume, he says, that Congress has no power to legislate upon the subject of slavery in the territories, and consequently all the enactments on that subject are merely void. And he puts an exclamation mark behind void. Uh, Judge Ryland expects to write a counter opinion. And thus we see how dangerous it is to put upon the bench mere partisan politicians, especially the bench of the highest courts. These two judges will undertake to nullify all the acts of Congress on this subject from the ordinance of 87 down to the Oregon bill and to overrule the dozens of decisions by the same court and a regular train of decisions to like effect by the Supreme Court of Louisiana. And this is further uh, verified by Napton himself, who who left behind a diary. And uh, shortly after the Dred Scott decision by Tawney's in uh, 1857, he noted that that was the exact decision that he wanted to to hand down in 1850 uh, in the Dred Scott case. So he was, I think, congratulating himself on on being so so uh, knowledgeable that he could have anticipated Connie's uh-huh. decision. Um, basically, he was reflecting the same uh, biases that uh, Tawney, uh would would uh, show in in the actual decision that was handed down in 1857. So um, it's a very interesting rea- reaction by Bates. And it also points to another fact in the case that came before the Missouri Supreme Court when Scott handed down his decision. It was not as radical as the one that Napton and Birch wanted to hand down just a couple of years before. And I think in large part was because you didn't you didn't have uh, a a strongly pro-slavery uh, uh, court uh, majority in the court at that time because uh uh, Ryland was against that radical decision. So Scott had to, uh, in his decision, tone it down a bit, though it's st- he still ruled against uh, uh, Dred Scott in the case. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are going on behind the scenes, which are 
really interesting, I think. Have you ever been a slave and wanted to be free? Because you once lived in free territory. Let me tell you about Dred Scott's situation. An enslaved man living in the U.S. nation. Dred's master took him all over the country. To states with slaves and to some that were free. He lived for two years in free Illinois. Till his owner, Emerson, was redeployed. In Wisconsin, Dred met... One of my favorite facts in the case is that one of Dred Scott's original masters, a guy by the name of Peter Blow, had himself become anti-slavery, and he ends up helping Dred Scott pay for some of his legal fees. How much do we know about that uh, fella? Well, he was a congressman, as I recall, and I, I don't know a great deal about Peter Blow. And the, the Blow family seems to have uh, befriended Scott during this time mm -hmm. um, because they had come to, to believe that slavery was wrong. Uh, I think it was the Blow family that had actually sold got to Emerson, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, military officer originally. And so perhaps there's a certain amount of, uh, of uh, guilt that they felt over that matter. Instead of emancipating him, they had sold him. And, and so now here Scott was trying to gain his freedom and they, they felt probably duty bound to help him. Mm -hmm. So I would presume that was the the dynamics uh, of that whole thing. And yeah, it is very interesting that indeed uh, uh, the the Blow family uh, seemed to to want to help Scott get out of the the, the real the actual situation that they had had uh, Scott under uh, themselves a couple of decades before. Uh, the case is interesting before the Missouri Supreme Court in that um, Scott uh, essentially overturns all the precedent that had gone before almost 30 years from 1824 and 1852. Uh, and, and the justification that he gives is that uh, attitudes towards slavery had changed and now they were more enlightened, referring to the South, uh, and uh, they recognized that slavery was beneficial to slaves. And this is what uh, Scott claims in, in his decision and argues. And he also gives what might be called a parade of horribles, the, the horrible things that might happen if they continued to rule in favor of slaves in these freedom suits. And um, basically he says there'll be all these horrible things that will happen because Missouri is bordered by uh, Iowa and Illinois, two free states, and that it will just encourage the slaves to run away. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, uh, this is uh, the idea behind why the, the precedent had to be overturned. It's interesting that the dissent of Hamilton R. Gamble is a very strong one in that he, he argues basically that it didn't matter what the circumstances were. The law should be followed and the facts in the case should be should determine whether or not uh, Scott should be freed. And so he makes, a, a, I think, a, a rather strong appeal. And I'll just read this. I hope it's all right that I'm reading these yeah, passages. Sure. They're very, very interesting. He, he says, uh, despite the trouble that was then ongoing over the slavery issue. Uh, and this is in 1852. So as you can imagine, uh, there had been a, a good deal of turmoil in the country as a result. He says, it is proper that the judicial mind, calm and self-balanced, 
should adhere to principles established when there was no feeling to disturb the view of the legal questions upon which the rights of parties depend. The cases here referred to are cases decided when the public mind was tranquil and when the tribunals maintained in their decisions the principles which had always received the approbation of an enlightened public opinion. Times may have changed, public feeling may have changed, but principles have not and do not change, and in my judgment, there can be no safe basis for judicial decisions but in those principles which are immutable. And I'll just point out also that uh, in his dissent in the, the Dred Scott case before the United States Supreme Court, uh, Benjamin Curtis actually uh, uh, cites this dissent by Gamble as uh, as a, a very strong one and, uh, and uh, uses it as his support in his own dissent, which I thought was interesting. Another figure that I think she's getting a little bit more recognition now, but is Dred Scott's wife, Harriet Robinson. She was, I know, involved in a suit for her freedom. Was that separate from her husband's? Well, typically they would be separate, but they often, like today, you can have cases rolled together. And so I believe that there may have been a an agreement between the lawyers on both sides of the case to that whatever the decision in the case for Dred Scott, whatever it was, that that would also remain true for for Harriet and the girls that that uh, uh, were their children. There, were, I think they had two young daughters as well. Okay. Uh, one figure I think is very interesting in this case is, is of course, the Supreme Court justice that is associated with this decision, a Roger Taney. In some ways, it's interesting that he is America's first Catholic on the Supreme Court. I mean, that's kind of incredible in itself, but given what a minority, religious minority, that Catholics were at that time. Of course, I guess they probably wouldn't want to claim him now, but how much do we know about his life? Do we know much about his faith and how it colored his views that he would end up handing down in this case? Well, I mean, you can see a lot of, uh, of uh, pro-slavery arguments that appeal to the Bible and uh, mm-hmm. the fact that uh, the the fathers of uh, of the Jewish faith and later on the Christian faith uh, were slaveholders themselves. And that was a, a very usual type of argument that was made by those who, who argued for uh, slavery as being a good institution. So I don't think that that was a re- his religion would have been a a uh, an obstacle. In fact, it wasn't an obstacle for Protestants either, mm-hmm. uh, or Jews uh, in the country. Though there were very few Jews, of course, but there were a few uh, in in the country. Um, and so I don't think that was an obstacle. One of the things that's very interesting about uh, Tawny is that when he was a young man, he actually was uh, strongly opposed to slavery. Huh. In fact, he he represented some slaves in freedom suits himself. Uh, there's one suit that uh, involved a a man who was uh, a mulatto, as they referred to them, he's, he's partly black, partly white. And the case actually went to the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court, that, that far up. But they, they were wanting to establish, it was kind of one of these friendly suits where they wanted to establish the uh, legal right to emancipation of this particular slave. And uh, it's only later that apparently Connie becomes 
uh, radicalized on the slavery issue. And it's true that uh, it's very unusual for Catholics to be involved in in politics and to gain a prominent place like on the Supreme Court of the United States. He becomes the right-hand man as attorney general to uh, to uh, President Jackson. And um, and it's in that role, uh, giving advice in different things like uh, the bank bill uh, issue that came up in the early 1830s and in other matters that uh, led to Jackson appointing Connie to the, to the Supreme Court of the United States. And, uh, and so uh, Tony is, uh, is an individual who seems to have become embittered over the decades over the slavery issue because uh, of, uh, and I think he, he very much imbibed the John C. Calhoun notion that there was no right uh, under the Constitution uh, to prohibit slavery from any part of the country. This is one of the arguments that uh, Calhoun made and also the very strong states' rights attitudes. And you see those reflected in some of the, the, the some of the decision that Tawny hands down. And uh, so uh, Tawny, along with uh, the rest of the country, is, is transformed. Uh, he, he really had what we would consider a more enlightened view concerning slavery. And over time, uh, he, he became a very much a radical pro-slavery person. I want to read part of his decision, and he brings up the, the Declaration of Independence. I'll read it first, and then I'll ask a question. He says, In the opinion of the court, the legislation and histories of the times and the language used in the Declaration of Independence show that neither the class of persons that had been imported as slaves nor their descendants, whether they had become free or not, were then acknowledged as part of the people nor intended to be included in the general words used in that memorable instrument. So, a couple questions about this. Well, I first would like to make a comment. You know, we know well that the abolitionists almost considered the Declaration of Independence a kind of an American scripture, or maybe even trumping uh, the U.S. Constitution in some ways. But Tawny, you know, twists it to make it seem like, well, this declaration was not for people of African descent, in essence. Where does he get that justification? Does he have any kind of historical evidence to back up his view on that? Considering the fact that, you know, when America separated from Britain, there were free people of color in this country. Right. Now, that's one of the major problems with this decision was the very very fact that uh, there were a number of states that allowed uh, free black uh, people who who had the pro- who met the property qualifications that almost all the states at that time had for voting and exercising other civil liberties uh, or civil rights, uh, political rights, uh, uh, were able to to actually vote, uh, and, and including in the ratification votes on the Constitution of the United States that occurred 
so that was a real problem for, for Tony. It was one of the, the things that was pointed out by Curtis uh, in his dissent. Uh, Tawny, I think, um, is uh, is clever in the way that he he uh, he interprets things. In this particular instance, he he's a little bit too clever in that he says, "Well, if if indeed these were these black people were uh, citizens and uh, did have rights under the Constitution, then they should they." if indeed it, they were meant to be included in the Declaration of Independence, then they would have had all those rights. And uh, he's denying that they had. So it, it's shown from the historical record that that was not right. That was incorrect. Um, and indeed, many white people, this is one of the things that Lincoln pointed out in response, was that there were many white people, uh, men and women, who did not have political rights though they did have their natural rights. And this is one of the things that uh, Lincoln and uh, many abolitionists point out, that indeed uh, everybody has these natural rights to life, liberty, and property or, or personal happiness. And uh, and that is not denied uh, by the fact that they don't have certain political rights. And so... Uh, white people as well as blacks were were uh, excluded from voting, and so under that that argument, uh, you can see how Tawney's argument falls apart. Um, and so, uh, Tawney is not um, is not making a good faith argument. I think many times he twists the facts in this this decision. In fact, there are so many times that he he, he he presents evidence that really isn't evidence also, uh, in particular about uh, citizenship of uh, black people. He argued that uh, that uh, because there was discrimination uh, against black people uh, in the laws of these various uh, states and, and when they were colonies, when they were colonies, that uh, this this proved that they didn't have any rights that they were respected and that there was uh, there was no uh, attempt on the part of those states to to uh, ensure those rights, uh, which was just not true. I mean, there was even one uh, slave state, North Carolina, that allowed for free blacks to vote uh, during the, the period of the, the Revolutionary War. So uh, you have... Uh, facts that are just uh, very, very obstinate things that uh, Tawny tried to to twist and, and or ignore. Often that's the thing that he will do to, to try to uh, cast the, the decision in the way that he wants it to go. Do we know if he was criticized by people that might have been pro-slavery but still saw the uh, lack of logic in his argument? Uh, there may have been. I'm not I'm not aware of any. Um, I'm sure there were some honest lawyers out there in particular who would have known uh, in their heart of hearts that indeed the, the Tawny decision was a really bad one mm -hmm. and, uh, from the standpoint of uh, the law and the Constitution and the facts or historical facts. This is one of the, the great things about uh, Lincoln was uh, in, in a – a, um, a speech that he gave in, in Springfield, Illinois, in the summer 
1857, just a few short months after the decision had been handed down, um, he noted how that uh, everything about this case uh, was such that really did not respect, uh, did not, should not be respected as a long-term precedent. However, he and and uh, so many who were opposed to the decision would also add very quickly that in Dred Scott's particular situation, uh, it it was um, it should be respected. And so they weren't arguing that uh, Scott should be uh, freed because it, it was, of course, the United States Supreme Court is the final arbiter of all legal matters. So, but he did argue that uh, because of the way that uh, that Connie had manipulated the facts, um, misreported many facts and the law and the Constitution, that it did not um, really come to the level, rise to the level of a decision that should be respected. Uh, and so uh, as a real long-term precedent. And indeed, that's what, the way it was treated by Republicans uh, and most Northerners, by the way. You know, there are a lot of Northerners, uh, Democrats, that, that thought the decision was just beyond the pale as well. You mentioned Lincoln's reaction to this, and of course, uh, a, a lot of people list the Scott versus Sanford amongst a, a handful of other events that would lead America to finally have the Civil War that had been threatened for many decades. And I think about Frederick Douglass. He ends up uh, having some reactions that we're still studying today. What is your assessment of Dred Scott bringing us closer to Civil War? It, it's always hard to say. Um, there was a certain momentum that was that uh, gathered from um, really from uh, the period of the Missouri uh, Compromise up to the time of uh, the Civil War. That it just it gathers a certain momentum that's very interesting. You mentioned Frederick Douglass. Uh, he gives a speech in 1857, May of 1857 about the decision. So it's just a couple of months after it had been handed down. And uh, I have a passage here from that speech, which I think is very pertinent to, to what we're, what your question. So I'll just read it here. He says, loud and exultingly have we been told that the slavery question is settled and settled forever. You remember it was settled 37 years ago when Missouri was admitted into the union with the slaveholding constitution. And slavery prohibited in all territory north of 36 degrees of north latitude. Just 15 years afterwards, it was settled again by voting down the right of petition and gagging down free discussion in Congress. Ten years after this, it was settled again by the annexation of Texas and with it, the war with Mexico. In 1858, it was again settled. This was called a final settlement. By it, slavery was virtually declared to be the equal of liberty and should come into the union on the same terms. By it, the right and the power to hunt down men, women, and children in every part of this country was conceded to our Southern brethren in order to keep them in the union. Four years after this settlement, the whole question was once more settled, talking about the Dred Scott decision, and settled by a settlement which unsettled all the former settlements. So basically what he's saying is uh, here's this momentum of uh, – of movement towards more and more disturbance over the slavery issue. And every time that that Congress 
tries to settle an issue, uh, it's just exacerbated it. And the same thing's going to happen with this decision by, by Tawny as well. Dred Scott himself, I feel, has a very tragic end to all of this because he does eventually get his freedom by the the woman who was suing to keep him, Eliza Sanford. And unfortunately, he I believe he was only got to live for about two years as a freeman before he died of, of tuberculosis. Do we know anything more about his life beyond that? Of course, he didn't get to live to see the Civil War, but did Dred Scott appreciate or was he given credit while he was still alive for the significance of his case or the fight for his case? Well, I'm sure he did. I I can't imagine that he he couldn't have uh, because uh, he would have been told, I'm sure, but I I don't think he could read. I mean, most slaves could not read because that was one of the prohibitions in the slave states that uh, it was against the law for anyone to actually uh, educate their their slaves. You know, an edu- uneducated uh, population is much easier to control than one that is educated, as you can imagine. And so he he would have been told, I'm sure, by many people. And he was living in St. Louis and 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 working and and would have uh, come in contact with a lot of different people who some who were anti-slavery, I'm sure, who would have told him. And then, of course, once he he uh, had his freedom, he would have had a little more uh, uh, liberty to, to move about. And, and I'm sure it was uh, through the, the Blow family alone, he would have learned a great deal because uh, they befriended him at that time. Now, I, I may be mistaken, but I thought that the Blow family actually bought his freedom for him. I think that's that's how he got his freedom. Yeah, I, yeah you're right. I, I missed that. I, I mean, Miss um, Sanford gave Scott to back to Taylor Blow, who you know, liberated him. Many people recognize that, uh, that he was an important cog in the machine, but of course, uh, he was something of a tool as well. He, he, did, not, he did not have a great deal of agency. Uh, of course, the agency was with the lawyers who were arguing the cases. And uh, so his situation was one where he, he saw an opportunity to gain his freedom and he took it. And that was a very brave thing to do, because, as you can imagine, if you did not gain your freedom, often uh, you would be punished severely uh, once you were back in the fold of uh, your master. And many masters would almost uh, automatically sell a slave down south and so he could have ended up on a a cotton plantation somewhere with a much worse situation than he had then and so these were always considerations that slaves had to make even if the facts were favorable to them in in their particular situation to sue for their freedom was a dangerous thing to do i mean it potentially could could make your situation much much worse if you lost the case. Though it should be pointed out that uh, I, I think you can still go online. There's a there's a website just for the St. Louis Circuit Court uh, proceedings in these uh, freedom suits. And it's, it's something over 100 cases uh, that uh, they have from the 
1820s up into the to the 1850s, where you have slaves suing for their freedom. So there were a lot of slaves that that attempted to gain their freedom that way, and they took they were rolling the dice, really, if you think about it. Right. It's almost just as dangerous as trying to run off, uh, because if you're captured, you're you're going to pay. We kind of brought this up the last time that me and you talked about. On the last episode, we talked about um, slavery and the American founding and how people today, if they want to make a case whether America is inherently a good country or an evil country, you can cherry pick certain cases. And so for the the side that wants to argue that America is inherently evil and, and we just got to scrap the whole system and start over, you know, they'll often reference the Dred Scott decision and almost make the argument that the racist folks were making, including Tani, that the Declaration of Independence, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was never intended for minorities. So do, do you see this a lot? Does it come up in your classes or uh, maybe in the academic world? Uh, am you, I just- you come across it from time to time, certainly. Um, uh, sometimes the seminars that I'll do for high school and middle school teachers uh, you'll have at least a couple. Mm-hmm. If if we're talking about the De- Declaration of Independence, uh, there'll usually be a couple of people out of maybe 15 or 20 mm-hmm. who will strongly advocate that. There may be others who agree with them who are silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with that position is, uh, and it's something that uh, Lincoln pointed out, uh, I think during the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates is one of the arguments that, that Lincoln made was that before Tawney, there was nobody who had ever made the argument that blacks were not included in the Declaration of Independence, all men being created uh, equal. Uh, he, he said that uh, it wasn't until Tawney that that had ever been expressed. And I think he may be right. I haven't been able to find a situ- uh, anybody uh, before Tawney who had done that. That doesn't mean that there wasn't somebody who had. Uh, but the, the argument that generally was made by pro-slavery people, uh, even people like uh, Jefferson Davis, uh, was that indeed uh, indeed uh, black people uh, were included, but the Declaration of Independence was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so you have that argument, uh, fair, fairly basic argument for a very long time. The, the problem with that that idea that uh, blacks weren't included in the Declaration of Independence is that um, uh, the contemporaries, uh, those people who signed the document, uh, Jefferson, who drafted the document, uh, up until his death, he never, he never ever uh, said that uh, that black people weren't included. And indeed, it's pretty clear that he meant for them to be included in that statement um, because he was opposed to slavery more strongly at that time than later on in his life. But even at the end of his life, the last two letters that he ever, he, he wrote uh, touched upon the, the natural rights of, of black people uh, and his opposition to slavery. I mean, the very last letter, he says that, that, uh, People were not born with saddles on their back and others born with uh, boots and spurs to ride them. Uh, and therefore, slavery was wrong. Mm-hmm. 
And so uh, that is the type of testimony that you should go to when you're trying to determine what was actually meant in 1776 in, in the Declaration of Independence. And all these people who want to argue, like Tawney, that because black people did not have full political rights and civil rights uh, in the, the colonies and later states, therefore they, they could not have been meant to be included by Jefferson and, and uh, the, the delegates to Congress at that time. But you say he's just a slave. But you say he's just a slave. If you'd like to hear Dr. Bowman and I's previous conversation on slavery and the American founding, you can find that on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 266. There's also episode 275, where we chat with another Ashland University professor, David Krugler, about the contrast between the 1910s and the 1920s. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Descent. So this has to be the worst decision made when they told poor Dred Scott, you're only just a slave. Don't give me that. Don't even give me that. I'll bust this. You.